0: listening to Catnap Dialogues, a show that features narratives from everyday people and their journey towards learning a language. I'm your host, Milo Falcone. Welcome back to another episode of Catnap Dialogues. I know I've been away for a little bit, but as some of you may know, I just graduated um, and it was a little hectic. I must say, I had to travel to Texas to get my degree. But anyhow, in today's episode, ironically, I have one of my former professors from University of Houston downtown. His name is Dr. Albert. And he is from Puerto Rico. I learned so much from him as a student, and I also learned so much from the way that they teach language or languages, I should say, in Puerto Rico. So I hope you do too. Now let's dive right in.
1: I'm uh, Dr. De Jesus Rivera Albert. I was born in New York City at a young age of two and a half, moved back to Puerto Rico, where my parents are from, and grew up there. Uh, Went to school there, went to college there, and came back to the States for grad school um, after my bachelor's degree. And been here ever since. Even though I visit frequently the island almost like every year, I've been in Houston, Texas um, since grad school. Um, I was born in Santa Clara in Manhattan. Where my parents have lived. My parents lived all the time, like in Hell's Kitchen. That's where they spent their 20 years as youngsters. That's when they met. And then the last two years of their stay in in New York, they moved to South Bronx. And so I was born there while my parents uh, in Manhattan, when my parents were living in the Bronx at the time.
0: And you grew up in Puerto Rico, you said?
1: Yes, it's two and a half years old in Puerto so, Rico. And
0: uh, what what part?
1: I live in the south of the island, um, in a small town called Yabucoa. It's a very tiny town. It's about 35,000 people. Um, it still is, maybe even less now than it was then. Um, and it's right opposite, in the south coast of the island. It's, uh, and I lived actually not in the town itself, I lived about uh, Three or four kilometers outside town like in up in the mountains in the jungle i call it the jungle it looks like a rainforest up there so i live up there in the rainforest
0: wow (laughs) that's intense yeah it is Uh, so I'm, i'm now i'm a little curious but um so when people ask you i guess where do you consider yourself from what do you usually say i almost
1: always say and this gets me in trouble because so I, I even say like uh, on security, like, you know, I crossing into Canada, I got me into trouble because I they were looking at the screen. And I said, what, they asked, where are you from? I said, Puerto Rico. And they said, no, that's not what we've seen here. And that they almost, they pulled me to the side. Was a but I always say Puerto Rico only because I have no memories of New York. So I, there's nothing I can tell people that will relate me to New York in a way from that age. My memories of New York are, from my freshman college year that I went back to New York for that freshman college year, only for one year. Then I went back to the island to finish my degree. Uh, So as a child, I have no memories of New York really. I only know what my parents tell me, my siblings tell me. And because of that, I feel like if I say, and my identity is just, I don't, I didn't retain things from that period. So my identity is of a, being a small person from a small town. Like, that's my identity, like, that's what I know. I don't know New York, so if people, if I say New York, they expect me to know things about New York, What <laughs> I don't really know New York. So I say Puerto Rico. Uh, what do you currently do for a living? I'm a professor at the University of Houston downtown. I teach Spanish composition, U.S. Hispanic Lit, um, and currently I'm uh, the Interim Director for the Center for Latino Studies here at the University.
0: Hats off to you, Dr. Jesus. <laughs> so, yeah, that's
1: what I keep, yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last few months. Yeah, keep me busy.
0: What is that role and title, if you don't mind sharing? It's okay if you, you don't have to share it. Is, it is
1: kind of, um, the idea is to prop up um, the Hispanic heritage within the city, and we do it in two different ways. We do it by fostering research and uh, everything that's had to do with academia and, and research um, and knowledge about the Hispanic community uh, pri- primarily in the city but also in the state um, and overall the nation and then we then we do a lot of outreach into the community kind of like bring in the communities to the to the um, fold of awareness so that we include like oral um, traditions that we have, I just have a, a, a I just had a festival where we showcase like different cultural heritage practices from Latin America and because we're in Texas we assume Mexico is the primary influence which is true but the idea was to kind of showcase what else was out there so we brought in flamenco from Spain, we brought in um, tango dance, professional dancers from Argentina so we wrote a little bit of everything so that people can see, and so we do that with the community. But then also we kind of foster people in research and and creating knowledge about the Latinx generation um, and issues that are important to our series and to our students usually.
0: What you're doing is so admirable, just in general, uh, because we need so much of that. We need scholars of color. We about you know, in mm-hmm. this case, Latino yep. representation. It's we're, we're so few, you're so few, especially those that reach higher education. And that's
1: actually one of the things that we, we kind of put out a, a call for recently graduated or, or to be graduated recently. Scholars of color that want to present their research and then kind of usually they would come here, but now we're doing it remotely because of, of the situation. But so, so they get an idea of what it would be like to present their topics to a student population and a faculty population. So that when they get out there in the job market, they have at least an experience of having doing, done it before. It's kind of intimidating at times to kind of present your ideas and uh, it seems like a, a practice. And, and it was not easy to accomplish because there was some pushback about why are you inviting people of color? I said, well, that's precisely the purpose of it. It's because they don't get invited that easily. Um, but it actually was a pushback a little in, in, a, in a sense to to why was it that or target population for scholars um, because there's many people that do Latinx related um, research right but not all of them are people of color and we wanted to do within that theme people of color doing it and then highlight those
0: Yes absolutely and uh and also getting outside perspective, right? Like in my in my case, uh, like I I admire a lot of your culture, actually Puerto Rico in general, right? So I I did my in my senior project. I did work on a comic strip that was called La Borriqueña. and they were interested in my perspective because I'm not necessarily a person who is a Puerto Rican descent, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it actually
1: is very interesting when somebody was tries to approach it and and they're sometimes seeing things that we don't see. We take- Exactly, or it's Mm -hmm. more relatable. I'm trying to, it's also like an interesting idea that I'm, that's my goal for next semester is to put out a call for students to reimagine the real life influences and heroes as superheroes. So I wanna see, you know, it would be interesting to see Hugo Chavez as a superhero or oh, see like Katrina as a superhero, or uh, Mariachi as a superhero. Yes. Oh, very interesting. So I'm, I'm working out the details to see how I pull this off.
0: It's wonderful, it's wonderful. And the, the thing about this, in this case, this comic book, it's it was so relatable to me, even though I wasn't Puerto Rican, right? Where, you know, where this is a very studious girl, you know, she has this, my tones, my skin color, you know, she has that, curly hair and she's going to school and she's working and she loves her culture and she coats witches which is super fascinating for for a lot of us so there's so much relatability you know in how the story is carried and then further on you know representing getting other aspects of the Puerto Rican culture integrated into it and then becoming this superhero right Um. So I, those are things that we're seeing also in like like La like Chola Power, which is another example, <laughs> it, which is a Peruvian superhero. That's you know, that. Oma Macha, you know, which is like another kind. Like it's crazy to me, and it should be it should be relatable content for us. Yeah, so I think that's, so. that's awesome. So um, that's pretty cool. So how many years in total would you say that you've lived in the United States? Then I know that Puerto Rico is just in case the listeners don't know, Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States. It doesn't act on on its own. It's very politically complicated, but in mainland, if you would.
1: It's true, yeah. yeah. Even though it's a territory of the United States, it's a different culture in many aspects. Um, Most people in Puerto Rico consider themselves to be Latin American, not Americans. That's something that surprises many people, but if you go there you ask them, or point of reference is usually are Latin American and Hispanic culture. And then the U.S. influence have come by way of music, of TV, and the way we dress, the language, of course. So it's slowly morphing into more of a hybrid culture, but still to this point, they consider themselves Latin American. Um, I live, um, I think, 28 years in the U.S. right now. Continuously. The last My 20. whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. More, uh, more than, than in the island. At least 20 in the island.
0: Wow. So, yeah, that's that's where I'm reaching. Um, I've reached that point where I've been in the United States longer than I've been in Canada or in uh-huh. Peru. And it's yeah. really like, hmm, what am I? <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, exactly. you know? yeah. Uh, So, what's your... It's. I don't want to assume anything. So what's your native language?
1: Spanish, that's the, the language that was spoken in my house that I grew up with. My parents do say that when I got to the island at two years old, I did have an English vocabulary, like a tiny English vocabulary that I soon lost. Um, so I only remember my Spanish um, up all the way until, you know, my, my, my I moved as a freshman to the U.S. It was just spanish even though i had older siblings that would converse in english every once in a while not often i I, it was part of the household but i didn't actually understand what they were saying Um, so to me for me was spanish i speak um, english and spanish i can read italian i can read french but not speak
0: well do you think that you have an accent do you
1: Oh, yeah, ask my kids, they'll tell you. <laughs> yes, I always, an, I always have an accent. It's something that I actually tell my students when they're learning Spanish. And I tell, I tell them, because sometimes they ask, how does it, long does it take? And I said, how many years do you think I've been in the States? And they, and they guess, and I tell them. And then I say, and you see my accent? So imagine if you move to a Latin American country and live for 20, 25 years, you might still have an accent in Spanish. Um, He said, so I do have an accent, it will stay with me. It will not go away. Doesn't mean I understand the language. I always had an accent.
0: During this part of the interview, Dr. De Jesus talks about some of the struggles that he encountered while going to school here in New York City. Let's hear what he has to say.
1: Being a territory, it's part of the, it's there. It's out there, English is out there. Not only is part of the formal education where we take an English course from first grade to 12th grade, we one of our subject is English. Uh, It's not enough to kind of learn the language. You always stay with the basic, the hello, how are you? But you end up being able to read it, really. Even though you don't speak it, you can understand when you read it. So that helped me when I went to, as a freshman to New York. So I could not communicate in English, but my textbook, I could follow my textbook with no problem. As a freshman, I remember, like, I could read, and I, I, I didn't, myself, I did not know I could read English really, because you read it in class, in school, when, you, when you're growing up, very basic, and then you're thrown into a freshman course, and there's, I was taking physical anthropology, and then I read it, I was reading it, and I was surprised that I could actually make sense of it, but then, when I had to answer questions for my tests or my projects, I could not formulate the answer in English. So it was very basic English, and usually my professor um, would take me over to the to the um, lab. We, we had a lab with a lot of specimens, and he would try to have a conversation with me about my answers. Say, so, okay, what did you meant when you said this? And then he was just kind enough to take that time. And I did great in the class because he understood that I knew what I was talking about. I just could not put it out in words. And, and so, yeah, it is very kind of weird, that situation. And I could not understand myself. I like, How come I can understand it, but I cannot write it?
0: I could not say it. But I'm glad that there's professors out there that are willing to work with you. Yeah, you he was amazing.
1: Shame. It was amazing. And whatever I wrote, he understood well enough to know that I knew the answer and he would give me credit. Where strictly you would not give me credit, he would give me credit.
0: When did you first learn English?
1: It depends what you mean by learn. Like like I said, it's part of the formal education from first grade to 12th grade. Um, so I knew enough where I could read like a short story and get just about all of it. Very difficult to write an essay, Um, even more difficult to speak about it, but I could read. Um, And then I went for my freshman year to Hunter College in New York City. And that- Huh? I said, go Hawks. (laughs) (laughs) I I went to the Hunter College and that's, and they did, they test me. They actually test me out and put me in writing and reading courses aside from my core classes they said you have to finish this alongside your core classes if at any point the core class become too difficult you can suspend the classes until you reach a certain level and then renew them and it kind of merged together what I didn't have to do, do that so I was able to keep up with my classes and the reading and the writing but that helped me a lot and so I think it took me honestly about a year before I could feel like I could write and have a conversation in English. Um, So it took me about a year with the vocabulary that I had and the exposure that I had and being surrounded by English and formal English at school before I was able to say, okay, I can, I can manage and I can, and, and obviously understanding it came first could like I, I could read it almost immediately when I was exposed to it in, in New York. And within, by the end of the first summer, because I went early in summer to learning and get a job before school started. Um, and by the end of that summer, I could follow it in TV. So I could follow on TV when people spoke and I could read it. And then it took me another year before I could actually converse or write up in English.
0: When do we determine that It's such a gray area, right? Like, when do we determine that you've learned, you know, that linguistic competency that you've developed? It is true.
1: It is very complex because I remember, like, likewise, I could follow my professors at school, the way they spoke, and it does not matter if it was math or anthropology or, or English, I would follow them, but I had a hard time on the street following people. So I could follow and understand my professor's English no problem from hearing it, but the same day I could go in the street and not be and somebody would tell me something I did don't know what they tell me and I kind of got a word here and there but the speed and the accent that they had was different from that academic Spanish English that I was used to so it took me a year to actually say I can kind of
0: understand anybody and have a conversation with anybody. Now, previously I had mentioned that I grew up in Canada and I lived in Ottawa. And in Ottawa, back then, I'm not sure what it looks like now, um, they or we had a bilingual system. So I learned English and French at the same time. So I was kind of curious about Puerto Rico and, you know, the complicated history it has and whether it had a system that was similar. Uh, to Canada, where they teach English and Spanish. Um, and this is what Dr. De Jesus had to say. It is compulsory
1: from first grade until 12th grade. And if you go to college, you have to add two more years of English. That's part of, of the core courses. So if you actually made it, make it to college and, and decide to go to college, two more years. But from first grade to 12th grade is one more subject, just like social sciences or math or Spanish, one more subject along the day for one hour or 50 minutes, usually it's 50 minutes, um, and that happens all, all uh, from first to 12th grade. You cannot skip it, it cannot be replaced or substituted for anything other subject, but it's always that it's just one hour, 50 minutes a day, five days a week from first grade to 12th grade, um, and a lot of it becomes. Vocabulary, because the idea is that by the time you go to high school, you will end up being able to read it. So they only dwell on the basic communication part of it, very lightly. So the first years is usually vocabulary and vocabulary vocabulary, and kind of pronunciation. This is the vocabulary. This is what it means. This is how you pronounce it. And that one for on, on for years, and then you get to the stage where you actually start writing a little bit of it but simple sentences and you go to the grammar of it so you go into the grammar of it and then by the time you get to high school then you start reading short stories short novels maybe a movie here and there and the goal is that you you're able to absorb it either reading it or hearing it but there's really not much emphasis in speaking really so you actually end up like i say i was able to read it But i could not communicate in spanish and that's the same experience i mean we've had this conversation with family members with friends um and they have the same experience it actually the newer generations can speak a lot more english than my generation did and it had nothing to do with school because they get it's the same system still in the island it has to do with the availability of cable tv and music in english so then your generations are almost bilingual and it's amazing to go to puerto rico now and and speak to a younger person because they usually can follow you in english and they can answer you back in english my generation wasn't able to do that um, and so it had nothing to do with the school system which hasn't changed in that respect it has to do with the exposure of english and how much english and i think my experience is this is happening all over latin america because i go to costa rica i have the same experience the younger kids uh, can follow English movies. They they are fans of English movies and they listen to them in English, and they can understand the students that I take that speak mostly English. They can have small conversations, um, and so the newer generations can do that. But because of uh, like an it's an inversion that's not built into the system. It's um, like school. It's almost like the way. English has taken over as a media power uh, worldwide, including the island. And, and so people consume English products. Uh, and I mean, TV, radio, uh, series, Netflix. And so the new generation and music, of course, can follow that, or my generation could not do it. By the time I finished high school, I could, I could read it and understand it. I could follow some conversations depending on the accent of the person, the speed that they were speaking. Um, but not have a conversation. I could not have a conversation.
0: I really thought it was a bilingual system out there just because, in my experience, because I'm hanging out with people my age, right, they're able to communicate or, like you say, follow along so well.
1: Well, it's a very unique phenomenon with Puerto Rico because, I mean, I, like I said, the newer generation, they don't have to leave the island to learn English because of all this access to cable, to TV, the internet has brought english to them so i mean they watched youtube they watched all of this which is in english and they learned to follow it from a young age none of it was available in, would, we would have phone when i grew up i didn't have phone until in my house until i was in college <laughs> so we didn't have phones um, but uh, but also with respect to puerto rico there's a lot of travel back and forth between the island and the and states And so it could be you, or it could be a family member, but there's always somebody bringing back English or somebody going there and being exposed to English back and forth to where the newer generation are used to kind of having that. So when I took my kids back, usually my friend's kids would notice that they had a hard time in Spanish, so they immediately would switch to English with my kids, but they never left the island, my, my, my friend's kids but they know English enough to have a conversation with my kids, which to me was amazing. How are they doing this? And so we had a conversation about, you know, they watch TV, they do this, they they understand. And it's happening amazingly, I mean, I have uh, a niece and a friend, uh, her kid, that are doing the same thing now with Korean because they watch so many Korean movies and series, they're a huge fan of them, that they're learning Korean on their own and they can kind of follow them in Korean. So that's amazing.
0: That's awesome. And thank you for educating me about that. I pardon my ignorance. I really thought that there were some sort of system, but it sounds to me like it's literally very similar to Latin America, which, you know, it is a Spanish country. Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah. kind of, yeah.
0: Could you tell me about a time or a moment in which you became aware or were made to feel different because of the way that you spoke English?
1: I think that started to happen interviewing for jobs when I first got here because, like I said, I have no problem whenever people will ask me a question understanding what they are telling me or even kind of thinking of what I should answer back. But when I first started interviewing um, for jobs here in the States, um, I realized that I could not elaborate as well. And that when I was saying something that to me was very clear and correct in English didn't mean that they could understand what I was saying. So they would ask me to repeat again, very politely, to repeat again. Or at times they even asked me if, if, I, if, if it was better if they bring over somebody that knew English so I could speak Spanish and then they could translate into English. And I would insist no that I want it to be my own words, even if Those words were simple um, because that spoke to my ability to be able to relate to the people I was going to be working with. And if I could not relate and communicate, you should not entrust me to do research. I was a a research scientist back then. I said, well, how can you instruct me to follow instructions and use all this expensive equipment and all this hazardous material if you're not sure that I understand it? Um, so I insisted that no, let me continue, so you can see if I'm the person for you for the job, um, and that was it. And then when I got the first job, it was still an issue for several months, like the communication and and, and writing reports that I have to write, and, and they wouldn't trust me to. Oh, can you can you write this part of the paper? And I said, well, I could write a version of it. I don't know how correct it's going to be, and then they would you know kind of point out no. You don't say it this way, you don't say this. And there was a lot of slang in a way that I wasn't aware of. To me, it was like the book English that I knew. It was from books. And there was many phrases, many things that didn't mean exactly what the words say because it's slang. You, people, if you grow in this culture, you know it. And I was, uh, I would write it in what I think was the correct word and they would tell me, no, please do not write it that way. <laughs> that looks wrong Um, uh, and I remember I don't I I, I can't remember exactly what the experience was it was something to do with um, a scientific procedure that that was asking me to draw that was the word to draw a certain amount of liquid from a sample we had a measurement and you draw this X amount of, of millimeters and transfer it to this so I was I was entrusted to write it, and I did not know the word draw at the time. So I put you suck, <laughs> you suck 10 millimeters <laughs> into the, and then they correct. I remember that I said no, and they told me that's not a good word. That could be a very bad word. They told me, but they never explained to me what why was that a bad word. I just learned not to use that, and they wrote no, you had to draw 10 millimeters. <laughs> So, but that was my first uh, experience looking for jobs and kind of the first job. That's kind of when I was aware that my understanding of English and speaking English and be able to adapt my English to the Texas English was very different. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a much bigger re- responsibility. I mean, in New York, it happened too. I remember... Um, since I got there in the summer, I had to look for a job, right? That, that was the plan. Look for a job, you save us some money, college is coming up, you need books, you need this, you need that. Um, so they sent me, my aunt sent me, she gave me money and she sent me down to Manhattan to a job office, like a government job office. So I went there and I took my turn. They gave me some paperwork to fill out. I fill out the, the paperwork. And then you wait for a, like a short interview and then they kind of let you know, you know what's available or not. I never made it past that interview. The the lady asked me, um, she looked at my, what I've had written in the form and she said, um, okay, now we need your green card. I had no idea what that meant. At that point, I never heard the term green card in my life um, because since we're part of the United States, you don't go through that process. So nobody knows what green card is because we never use it being citizens from birth. Uh, and so nobody in my family have ever mentioned that was a possibility, what it meant. But, so I I literally did not know what green card meant. Um, so I went back and I called my mom in Puerto Rico. I said, Mom, they will not let me go through the next step because I don't have a green card. And my mom, again, have not heard the term before. Uh, even though she lived in New York, she had never heard the term and she said, Albert, I think they're asking you for your um, high school diploma. They need your high school diploma. So that's what we did. I went to high to my high school. My mom went. She sent me my diploma, and I went back. And then they she, she told me, the same. no, this is not it. I need your green card. So that was it. So I, I started looking for jobs, you know, like from the stores directly. I never went back to that office because I had no idea what she wanted from me. And it took me several months before I ran into somebody, and I told the story, and they said, no, green card is this. And I said, it doesn't relate to you. All you have to do is you're a U.S. citizen and that w- it will go away to because it didn't apply to me. But at the time, I didn't know what green card meant. And she was so sure what she was asking. And I had no idea how to answer. And
0: that was also a miss on their part too, right? Because yeah. they had seen that you went to school yes. in Puerto Rico.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Even if you said Puerto Rico, they should know what that meant for them.
0: When you express yourself, like let's say you're angry, or you want to talk to your daughters or your sons, I don't know, kids. <laughs> I don't know what you have. What? Um, what? What do you? Or you want to talk to your mom? Like, what is the easiest language for you to use? What comes first?
1: What comes out? If I don't think about it, if I do, it, it happens every day. It's Spanish. You have to curse if I have to say something. You have to complain if I get angry. It will be just. Spanish, not even anything in English. It would be just Spanish, straight up Spanish. And at this point in my life, honestly, if I have to curse, it will probably be Mexican Spanish. (laughs) Because I always say that Mexico has the best words for cursing of any Latin American country. We only have like two in Puerto Rico. We repeat them, we'll say very loud, but Mexico has many of them. So I've learned. But it will be Spanish, actually.
0: Um, and then non-language related, but more like culturally, um, would you like to share some facts about your homeland, um, food, culture, traditions, language?
1: No, actually, mine is, is, is the opposite. I go almost yearly to Puerto Rico. I have no family, close family, in the island anymore because they moved to the state at some stage or another, including brothers and sisters and parents in the states but I have my childhood friends, which to me are like brothers too. Like it's, it's a band of brothers. It's really not, it's not friends, it's just brothers. Um, and so we go, and the moment I, I, I text, I'm going, uh, there's somebody waiting for me at the airport, and we do everything together, and we go chinchorriando. Um, everywhere I don't know if you heard the word chinchorriado. It's like, like the latest thing in the island. And it's, it's insane is what it is. I don't know how people can handle it. Um, but they always schedule one of those and then and it's a way for the economy um, since the economy is so bad in the island's been for the last 20 25 years most people have coped with it well, a lot of people have coped with it by um, going into retail you know you can resell clothing you can resell tennis shoes you can put up a, a little uh, food stand or sell uh, uh, produce by the road and so it kind of sprung a lot of uh, restaurants that do Puerto Rican cuisine outside, I mean, within the island, outside of San Juan. And that was something that just didn't exist when I lived there. Nobody went out out to eat Puerto Rican because we cook it at home. Why would you go out if you can? And my mom is the same way, even to this day, my mom won't try Puerto Rican food in a restaurant. So I can do it at home better, why would I pay for it? So when I was a child, nobody went to Puerto Rican restaurants because they didn't exist. It was just a handful of them in the capital city for tourists, really, but not anywhere. And now it's the opposite. Like, every restaurant is a Puerto Rican restaurant. And it had to do with this reinventing ourselves for, um, for the economy. And so that's what we do. It's a, the, the idea is that you go and get together with friends from a caravan of cars, or maybe one big car, and just spend the next six, seven hours driving around little towns. And each little town has a place that is known for something in particular. Um, So if you go to seafood, you go to this one. You want for drinks, you go to this one. If you want for this kind of dish, you go to this. And they literally spend hours doing that over the weekend. Um, I cannot handle that much food, so I usually wait for them at some point. I say, "Okay, I'll wait for you. But they actually do. And it's very interesting because it it has brought a lot of pride um, into Puerto Rican cuisine. We have allowed many people to, to have a uh, living and it have made the countryside that was basically dying because nobody visited it, It have brought it back because now the best place are in the countryside. So people go there and kind of an excursion and go into somewhere in the middle of nowhere that they never visited before just to eat and spend a few hours there. Uh, and, and it's very fun. If you have a good group of people like my friends, it's a lot of fun. And so I, I actually recommend everybody to, to go. And now it's, it's it's become a tourist thing even. So you can have a party bus waiting for you at your fancy hotel in San Juan, and they pack it up with tourists and take them for the next, all around the island, eating away. Uh,
0: okay. Is there anything else that you would like to share about your country um, in terms of stereotypes that you would like to debunk, for instance, or anything that you think that you may be missing about?
1: Most people would know especially in Latin America, it's kind of interesting. If you are a U.S.-born American, usually you might not know that Puerto Rico is a territory and a U.S. citizen. But most people in Latin America do know that information. And I tell them that despite that, which is what they usually know about the island, our experience in the U.S. is very much that of an immigrant culture. I said, that might surprise you, but we don't, when we step into the United States, we don't step in as as an American. We step in as a Latin American. So for us, it's an immigrant experience as well. The sense of loss, the sense of longing, the sense of uh, if I make it, I can go back. All of that, that you see in Mexican and Central American culture, South American culture, when they come to the state, we also share that. So we all identify with that pledge of the immigrant, even though
0: technically we are not. Um, A grieving process, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, folks, that's all for today. A huge thanks to my former professor, Dr. Jesus Rivera. Now, why am I struggling saying that? Now, before I leave, next month I'll be having the last episode of this season. Until then, I hope that you can join us. See you next time. This episode was produced and edited by me, Milo Falcone, music by DJ Young, Zayfall, and Yo Nací en Puerto Rico by Angel Canales. See you next time.